All right, we are ready to resume. We have a couple of quick announcements, and then uh, Dr. Kraft will jump into his second talk. And for our first announcement, I wanted to turn it over to Ben Hughes, who's pastor of Emmanuel Christian Fellowship, uh, with information about this year's Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe Ballet. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you, Dr. Kraft. That was awesome. I'm still, I need to just go away and think for a little while. Just go off and just think. Anybody else feel that way? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is this is great. This is really dense, uh, rich stuff. Uh, I do want to announce, this is going to be a strange announcement, because I don't have anything concrete to announce uh, about the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe Ballet. Uh, this is a an event that we do every year. It's associated with and actually uh, preceded the, the Mars Hill Forum uh, as a way to engage uh, our city uh, with the truth of the gospel in a way that speaks to the imagination. The Mars Hill Forum is aimed at the mind and the intellect and reason. Um, but the other side of C.S. Lewis is that imaginative side, and that's the side that gave birth to the Chronicles of Narnia and other of his uh, works of fiction. And so every year we do, we stage a ballet adaptation of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And we, we try and do it around Christmas every year and make it a Christmas tradition. There was a problem this year with the calendar, the way the calendar fell. Apparently, there's one less week this year between Thanksgiving and Christmas. And so all of the nutcrackers in town um, took up the week that we would normally use for our performance. So we have to, had to call an audible this year, and we are looking into doing it sometime in January. It will likely be around the weekend of the holiday weekend of the Martin Luther King holiday, which is January 20th. Um, we are looking at doing it back at the Singletary Center this year again. Uh, none of that's confirmed, but that's just to, to get you thinking in that direction. Save the date, maybe. Um, but I do want to invite you and also invite you to visit our website. As soon as we know concrete details, we will post it there. We have a website. It's lwballet.com. We also have a Facebook page, um, and you can ask questions and, and interact there. It's uh, facebook.com slash LWW Ballet. Uh, either one will, will get you the latest information on the ballet. But I do want to invite you. I will say on our website, there's a little uh, trailer that we, that we cut together. It kind of gives you a, a flavor of a sense of what the ballet looks like and feels like. Uh, it's a lot of fun. Raise your hand if you've been there before. Yeah. So I, I would say that every person that raised their hand would probably recommend going. It's great for kids, great for all ages. Um, so I want to invite you to that as well. Uh, that will be sometime in January in the city of Lexington, and that's what I'll have. Thank you. Thank you, Ben. Um, speaking of Save the Date, we're working on the 2020 Mars Hill Forum. We don't have a date locked in yet. We're targeting October 31st for next year. We try really hard to avoid UK football Saturdays, especially home games, and right now that looks like the ideal date. So we hope to have a speaker secured by January. And so keep your eyes on the Mars Hill Forum Facebook page, and we'll have announcements posted there. We're also uh, looking at doing some Problem of Pain book clubs. If you're interested in being in part of a book club around the Problem of Pain, please email me. My email is k-e-l-l-y-h-a-h-n at gmail.com, k-e-l-l-y-h-a-h-n at gmail.com. And uh, let me know generally where you live and also if you're interested in leading one of those groups. And I'll, I'll put some coordination together there. Both of our talks uh, from Dr. Kraft are being recorded today, 
and we will have that. Um, we will have links on the Mars Hill Forum Facebook page, and the links will also be on our Mars Hill Forum website. Uh, sometime, hopefully within the next week, we'll have links to the two talks given today. I, finally, I wanted to give just a brief update on what some of our previous speakers at the Mars Hill Forum have been up to. This is our third year of the forum. And in 2017, Dr. Devin Brown from Asbury University kicked things off for us. And Dr. Brown is here today. You can give a quick wave where you're at. There he is. He's right over here. So he, gave, uh, he kicked us off two years ago on the life and works of C.S. Lewis. And his newest book, which is just released, is called C.S. Lewis and the Moral Argument. The subtitle is The Clue to the Meaning of the Universe. It examines Lewis's journey from serious atheist to Christian theist and the arguments he makes in Mere Christianity about the moral argument. So you can uh, look for that. Dr. Joseph Pierce, who was also at the 2017 Forum, he recently became director of book publishing at the Augustine Institute, and his most recent book is Literature, What Every Catholic Should Know, and it came out last April, and he's currently working on his fourth book on Shakespeare. Also at last year's Forum, Dr. David Downing uh, was here. He was talking about Lewis as the most reluctant convert, and he and his wife, Crystal, have a podcast for the Wade Center. It's called the Wade Center Podcast. And they focus mostly on C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, Owen Barfield, Charles Williams, George MacDonald, G.K. Chesterton, and Dorothy Sayers. And so they interview experts on them. It's an excellent podcast. I can't recommend it enough. And they've had 10,000 listens in just under a year. So I highly recommend you subscribe to it. And finally, Dr. Lewis Marcos was here last year. And I he maybe is on his way here right now. He's, he's visiting us this weekend. He has two books coming out in 2020. The first is From Plato to Christ, Ascending the Rising Path, which is a sequel to his book From Achilles to Christ. And his second is The Myth Made Fact, Reading Greek Mythology Through, through Christian Eyes. So you can be on the lookout for those in 2020. Well, Dr. Crafe gave us a lot to digest in his first talk, and now that we're all settled in again, and I've talked too much, let's bring Dr. Crafe back up to talk about C.S. Lewis and religion and morality. This is a different kind of talk than the first one because it's about a very specific philosophical problem rather than a very general practical issue. What is the relation between religion and morality? Well, I think the most direct answer to that question in C.S. Lewis is twofold. One is the moral argument for the God of the Christian religion in mere Christianity. And the other is the historical survey of the origin of religion and morality and their connection in the introduction to the problem of pain. Every once in a while, a great thinker like Lewis or Aristotle gives us an idea that gives us a set of categories for classifying everything, like Aristotle's four causes or Kierkegaard's three stages. Uh, the introduction of the problem of pain uh, sets up the problem by giving an account of the history of religion which leads to Christianity, which in turn creates the most serious version of the problem of pain. If we didn't believe in a God of such love, we'd have less of an intellectual problem solving pain. But the introduction is not about the problem of pain. It's about Christianity and its historical origin. 
So let me summarize that for the first five or ten minutes and then go off of it in many different angles. In all developed religion, he says, we find three strands or elements, and in Christianity, one more. The first of these is what Professor Otto calls the experience of the numinous, the implicitly supernatural, the mysterious, the awesome. Uh, suppose you were told there was a tiger in the next room. You would know that you were in danger and would probably feel fear. But if you were told there's a ghost in the next room, and if you believed it, you would feel a different kind of fear. It would not be based on the knowledge of danger, for no one is afraid of what a ghost may do to him, but of the mere fact that it is a ghost. It is uncanny rather than dangerous. The feeling may be described as awe. Man, from a very early period, clearly began to believe that the universe was haunted by spirits that inspired that awe. This awe is not the result of any inference from the visible universe. There's no possibility of arguing from mere physical danger to the uncanny. When a man passes from physical fear to awe or dread, he makes a sheer jump and apprehends something which could never be given as danger is by the physical facts and logical deductions from them. Awe or dread is in a different dimension from fear. No enumeration of the physical qualities of a beautiful object could ever include its beauty. The same is true of awesomeness or the numinous. So there are only two views that we can hold about this experience of awe. Either it is a mere twist in the human mind corresponding to nothing objectively real and serving no biological function, yet showing no tendency to disappear from the human mind at its fullest development in the poet, the philosopher, or the saint. Or else, if not, it is a direct experience of the really supernatural to which the name revelation might properly be given. doesn't say it's infallible, but he says it's a an experience of the presence of God in some confused form. Now, the numinous is not the same as the morally good. If the numinous is the psychological origin of all religion, the merely human, natural, spontaneous uh, field or seedbed that any claim to a further divine revelation, whether by scripture or mystical experience, uh, is added. If that's so, it's not necessarily the same as the morally good. And a man overwhelmed with this awe is likely, if left to himself, to think the numinous object beyond good and evil. So this brings us to the second strand or element in religion, which is quite distinct. All the human beings that history has ever heard of acknowledge some kind of morality. That is, they feel towards certain proposed actions the experience expressed by the words, I ought or I ought not. Duty, obligation. Uh, a non-physical and non-logical necessity. I must do this in order to be good. I must avoid this in order not to be evil. 
These experiences resemble religious awe in one respect, namely that they cannot be logically deduced from the physical environment and experiences of the man who undergoes them. And this second element is the consciousness not merely of a moral law, but of a moral law at once approved and disobeyed. So this too is either inexplicable illusion, which is the view of the moral subjectivist and the moral relativist, or else direct revelation. You can't deduce an ought from an is, although you can deduce oughts from premises that include an is and another ought. If you didn't follow that logic, don't worry about it. <laughs> if you did follow it, you may want to worry. I once met an astronomer and I said, you know, when I look up into the night sky, I don't see what the ancients do. I, 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 the Big Dipper doesn't look like a bear to me. And he said, well, if it starts looking like a bear to me, you need a psychoanalyst. <laughs> the moral experience and the numinous religious experience are so far from being the same that they may exist for quite long periods without establishing any mutual contact. In many forms of paganism, the worship of the gods and the ethical discussions of the philosophers have very little to do with each other. In fact, in ancient Athens, the philosophers and the priests uh, didn't talk to each other. They would cross the street before they would uh, associate with each other. The third stage in religious development arises when men identify these two things, when the numinous power to which they feel awe is made the origin or guardian of the morality to which they feel obligation. Non-moral religions and non-religious moralities still exist. Perhaps only a single people, as a people, took this new step with perfect decision, I mean the Jews. The uniqueness of the Jews is not either of these two things, but their relationship. Not that God exists, not even that God is one, but that God is good. The fourth strand, or element, is a historical event. There was a man born among these Jews, that's important. If he were a Hindu, he wouldn't be that surprising. Who claimed to be, or to be the son of, or to be one with, that something which is at once the awful haunter of nature and the giver of the moral law. This claim is so shocking, a paradox which we may easily be lulled into taking too lightly, that only two views of this man are possible. Either he was a raving lunatic of an unusually abominable type, or else he was and is precisely what he said. There is no middle way. That's the famous Lord Liar or Lunatic argument. All right, that sets up the issue historically. The relation between ingredient number one, which you might call psychological religion, and ingredient number two, morality, an absolute morality. There's no such thing as relative morality. If there's no morality, if there's no absolutes, there's no morality. There's just practicality. Utilitarianism, for instance, is not a moral philosophy. It's, it's an immoral philosophy, or rather an amoral philosophy. Well, there are two ways of raising, at least two ways of raising the question, what is in fact the logical relationship between religion and morality? 
One of them is the way Dostoevsky uh, puts it. If God did not exist, everything would be permissible. That seems to mean morality is dependent upon religion. Another way of expressing the same issue is Socrates' question in the Euthyphro. The Euthyphro is a, a very clear and very interesting and very important little dialogue. Socrates is on his way to court to be executed for the uh, uh, crime of uh, atheism, since he doesn't believe in the gods of the state, although Socrates is really, paradoxically, the most pious man in Athens. Uh, Euthyphro is also on his way to court to prosecute his father for murder. His father uh, saw a slave murdering another slave, uh, so he uh, uh, caught the, the murderous slave and tied him up in a ditch because there were no jails or cops nearby and accidentally let this slave uh, die by freezing overnight. Uh, and Euthyphro is now prosecuting his father for murder. Socrates is shocked. Uh, he's being tried for the crime, not just of atheism, but impiety. And he says, Euthyphro, you must be an expert in piety because... Uh, I always thought piety was respect for both the gods and the ancestors, and your father is your ancestor, uh, and could you bring him to court if you're, if you're really pious? I, I, I'm going to be tried and maybe lose my life because I don't understand what piety is. Apparently you do. Please teach me. So Euthyphro says, of course, I am an expert in piety, and the reason I'm doing this to my father is that one of the gods did this. I think uh, uh, Zeus did it to his father Uranus, uh, or was it Uranus who did it to, uh, to Kronos? Anyway, uh, I'm doing what the gods do. Oh, so piety is uh, relative to the gods, yes. So a thing is pious if the gods approve it, right? Don't the gods approve it because it's pious? Oh, no. There's no intrinsic morality. There's no rational morality. Morality is simply doing what the gods do and what pleases them and what they tell you to do. In other words, if the gods told you to chew your neighbor's left ear, that would be good. And not to do it would be bad. And if the gods told you to hate your neighbor, that would be your obligation. And love would be a sin. And Socrates says, oh, I disagree with that. I think, I think that uh, if there are gods, uh, then they will things because they're good. I would only worship a god because he's good. So you have two different theories of the relationship between religion and morality. Euthyphro says that morality is totally dependent on religion. Morality is simply doing whatever the gods say. Uh, Socrates says, no, it's the other way around. You might think that that's an issue that's only relevant to pagans because pagans believe in many gods, and obviously the gods contradict each other, and obviously Socrates is right. And obviously Socrates wins the first argument with Euthyro when he points out that uh, you can't be both good and evil at the same time. But if two of the gods have a dispute, let's say Zeus and his wife Hera, one of them, let's say, supports Agamemnon as a hero and the other condemns him as a villain. If you support Agamemnon, you're uh, pious according to Zeus but not Hera. And if you uh, don't, you're the opposite. And that's logically contradictory. That's impossible. Well, that's easy. But then Euthyphro says, well, at least all the gods are agreed in one thing. What's that? Well, what I'm doing is right and pious. <laughs> Fine. That brings us into monotheism. There's only one God with only one divine will. Fine. The question is just as relevant to us as it is to pagan polytheists. Does God will morality? Yes, he does. 
Well, does he will it because it's good, or is it good because he wills it? The intrinsic goodness of things like justice and charity and the virtues, does that stem from God and dependent on God's will? Is it a kind of creature of God? Uh, or, on the other hand, uh, is God defined by those virtues? Well, there's a pr for a Christian, there's a problem either way. If Euthyphro is right, then God is arbitrary. Uh, a thing has no intrinsic, reasonable rightness or wrongness. Whatever God wills, that's right. And that reduces justice to power. Might makes right. God's the boss. He said so. That's it. That's obviously not the God of the Bible. God, the God of the Bible says, come, let us reason together. Appeals to reason. On the other hand, there's a problem with Socrates' position. If Socrates' position is the one that Plato uh, ascribes to him, then there's an eternal, absolute, intrinsic, impersonal rightness called the good or the idea of the good or the essence of the good or the form of the good that is the true absolute. And if there's a God, he's subordinate to that. In other words, God wakes up every morning, looks at the Ten Commandments on his wall and says, well, I was a good little God yesterday. I'll try to obey them today too. That won't work either. Which causes the other? Which is the standard for judging the other? Which is either the efficient cause or the, the formal cause of the other? Either way, you've got a dilemma. And also with Dostoevsky saying, if God didn't exist, everything would be morally permissible. In other words, there's no intrinsic morality. There's only religious morality. Well, then how do you explain the existence of moral atheists? On the other hand, if it's not true that if God didn't exist, uh, everything would be permissible, then morality is independent of God. And if morality is an absolute, if it's not just our invention, like the rules of, of, of a game, uh, and that's not really morality, well, then there are either two absolutes or the moral absolute is superior to God. So you've got that same dilemma again. There are only two answers to that question that are apparently possible. And mainline Islamic theology, ever since the ninth century triumph of the Asherites over the Mutazilites, takes Euthyphro's position rather than Socrates' position, because the early Muslim philosophers that took Socrates' position were clearly heretics, and they said Aristotle is superior to the Quran. Uh, and in reaction to that, Islamic modernism, Islamic fundamentalism became Muslim orthodoxy for the last 1,200 years. That's not exclusive. Islam is not a creedal religion. There are Muslims who, who disagree with Euthyphro, but the mainline do take the Euthyphro position. Uh, so apparently you've got to be either a, a fundamentalist or a heretic. There are, however, three answers in Christianity. And I think they're based on good biblical exegesis. Uh, when John writes his gospel, he begins with a philosophical term, probably the term that is the most profound word in any human language ever invented, the term logos. Uh, I once had to pass a Greek test at Yale, and uh, I had to translate all of the fragments of Heraclitus, about 120 of them. 
And Heraclitus uses the term logos many, many times in very subtle ways, some of them more physical, some of them more spiritual, some of them allegorical. Uh, and I find, found that uh, I had to have at least 12 different translations of the word logos to put Heraclitus into acceptable English. And my professor said, very good, I was trying to trick you uh, into thinking that one word has one meaning uh, and you, you pass the test. Well, logos means, on the one hand, speech, language, word, words, communication, uh, revelation, uh, language. On the other hand, it also means idea, understanding, wisdom, thought, reason, argument, uh, something logical, something intellectual. And in the third place, it also means order, meaning, form, structure, uh, objective truth, relationship. Uh, the three logoi go together because what language is is an expression of thought. Uh, this book is not a thinker, but it was written by a thinker. So even though this book doesn't think, it reveals thought because it uses physical things, squiggles of black ink on white paper, to communicate the thought of C.S. Lewis to the thought of us who read it. But if there were no me and if there were no C.S. Lewis, then these squiggles of black ink on white paper would not be logos. So language presupposes thought. Thought, on the other hand, presupposes truth or order, or intelligibility. If thought is intelligence, there can be no intelligence without intelligibility because intelligence is essentially a sign, a pointer to something else. Philosophers call that intentionality. Uh, they're not just things, but signs. I believe this, the insanest philosophy in the history of the world is one that now dominates our universities. It's called deconstructionism. And the essence of deconstructionism is that things are not signs at all. Signs are just things. Archibald MacLeish in Ars Poetica formulated very accurately, I think, the central credo of deconstructionism when he said, a poem should be palpable and mute, like globed fruit. A poem should not mean but B. Mao Zedong, in the little red book, uh, said a similar principle. He said, we communists will conquer the world because everyone else naively believes that words are labels that people put on bottles to tell other people what's inside the bottles. We know that words are little dynamite sticks that go off in people's brains, and we have the matches. In other words, words are just power play. And that's the essence of deconstructionism, that truth is simply power. Uh, that's Nietzsche. The will to power is the innermost essence of being, says Nietzsche. Well, I've met deconstructionists, and I've tried to understand something from them. I've learned something from every philosophy in history. I've learned something from Mein Kampf. I've learned something from the Communist Manifesto. I still have learned nothing except the philosophy of hell from deconstructionism. There is no meaning. Well, is that tragic? Sartre says so. The existentialist is very disturbed that there is no meaning. Good, good, good. You're on the road. But deconstructionists are very happy that there is no meaning. 
The medievals thought that things were signs, that everything in the universe was a, a symbol, that God wrote two books, nature and scripture. Cartesian dualists think that, well, there is two kinds of reality. There is thought and there is matter. Uh, and matter is just matter, and thought is just thought, uh, and things are just things, not signs, and signs, that is ideas, are just signs, that is just ideas, not things, uh, and they just separate the two. Uh, but deconstructionists say, no, there's only one thing, things. There are no signs. Not only are words not signs, even things are not signs either. Well, logos uh, was used by the Greeks for all three of those meanings, intelligibility, intelligence, and communication, or language. Uh, and therefore, when John wrote his gospel, he realized uh, that this is the fundamental term of Greek philosophy. This is what the philosophers are looking for. Uh, the sophists stopped at language, control people by language, uh, make big bucks by uh, uh, arguing your case in court and winning uh, because you... Uh, uh, commit clever fallacies that are that are undetectable. Uh, ordinary philosophers wanted more than that. They wanted wisdom. But the great philosophers went to the highest meaning of logos, the ultimate truth or meaning of all things, not just our ideas, but Platonic ideas, ideas beyond minds, truths that were the objects of, of, of minds. And John says, Jesus is all three. He is the incarnation of the Logos. And the English translation of Logos in John's Gospel is always word, because word presupposes the other two. You can't have words without thought. You can't have thought without meaning. So John is saying uh, basically what uh, Paul is saying on Mars Hill. He is saying that this thing that you philosophers were always looking for, in all of its fullness, is present here. It became flesh. That equation, the Logos, became flesh, a, a mortal human being. That is one of the most astonishing equations in history that changed the world. Well, because Christianity has such close connections with Greek philosophy, it has a third answer to our dilemma the Euthyphro Dilemma, or the Dostoevsky Dilemma. It says that both faith, which is our response to God and religion and the numinous and the awesome and the supernatural, on the one hand, and reason, on the other hand, uh, the thing Socrates incarnated so, so surprisingly, uh, both of these go all the way up. God is not under or over either one of them. They are both attributes of God. Uh, Socrates implicitly is putting reason above faith and judging his religion, the only religion he knows, uh, by the standards of reason and finding it wanting. And he is indeed, by the legal standards of Athenian law, an atheist. He doesn't believe in any of the gods of the state. If he did, all he has to do is say, well, at least I believe in Zeus, and they'd have to let him go home with his head on his shoulders. But he does believe that reason goes all the way up. Reason is an absolute. On the other hand, Euthyphro, and apparently Dostoevsky, 
but I think not really, uh, believe it's the other way around. That reason doesn't go all the way up. And that certainly rational morality doesn't go all the way up, that the will of God is superior to reason, that if, as Occam says, if God commanded you to hate him, that would be your moral obligation. Occam is the father of nominalism, which is the denial of all universals and therefore the denial of all moral universals, so there's no objective universal truth in morality. It's just conformity to God's will. That's a, uh, a profoundly destructive heresy. Well, Christianity develops this third answer, the synthesis or marriage of faith and reason as the two necessary aspects of our response to God. God is utterly good uh, and therefore we are demanded to be godlike. The will of God is perfectly good and is our absolute standard. But the reason of God is also our absolute standard. The reason of God and the will of God are in God identical, although we can distinguish them. That third answer, which is most subtle, and which you find in Augustine and Aquinas uh, and in C.S. Lewis, uh, is unfortunately absent in most Islamic theology, which is the reason Muslims fight rather than argue most of the time. Let's look at Dostoevsky's version of it. If God does not exist, all things would be permissible. That's what logicians call an enthymeme. That is, it's a logical argument with some of the parts missing. Uh, they're not so much missing as implied. What's implied is, well, if God does not exist, all things are permissible, and obviously not all things are permissible, and therefore God does exist. That's the moral argument for the existence of God. It's a very powerful argument. Dostoevsky implicitly uses it uh, fictionally in the Brothers Karamazov, uh, especially focusing on Ivan, who believes that and therefore justifies his parricide, his intention to murder his father. Jean-Paul Sartre surprisingly agrees with Dostoevsky in that premise. In Existentialism and Humanism, he argues, Dostoevsky wrote, if God does not exist, all things are permissible. We atheistic existentialists agree with Dostoevsky's premise, but not his conclusion. If God does not exist, all things are permissible. God does not exist. Therefore, all things are permissible. Sartre is a nihilist and an absolute moral relativist. He explicitly says that a thing acquires value simply from our willing it. Therefore, there's no such thing as evil. Everything that we will is good for us, to us, totally subjective morality. Well, now let's look at these two arguments. Let's compare uh, Dostoevsky's with Sartre's. They start with the same premise. If God does not exist, everything is permissible. Once you accept that premise, you can go in two different directions. You can go in Dostoevsky's direction. Obviously, not everything is permissible, therefore God exists. You can go in Sartre's direction. For Sartre, it is absolutely and non-negotiably true that God does not exist. Atheism is his premise. He describes his philosophy as an attempt to be a totally consistent atheist and to deduce all the premises that logically flow from atheism. 
most atheists today hate Sartre because Sartre is much too logical. Most atheists don't want to be total nihilists and total moral subjectivists and total moral relativists, but Sartre shows you have to be if you want to be a consistent atheist, uh, if there's no God, and if morality is totally dependent on God, there's no morality. Uh, they implicitly are saying, Sartre, you're letting the cat out of the bag. You really must be a theistic spy planted in the midst of us atheists in order to scare us, literally scare the hell out of us, and to make us go screaming into the arms of the nearest clergyman. Which may have been God's providential strategy, anyway. Um, which of those two arguments is more reasonable? Well, that depends upon the second premise. The first premise is the same. If God does not exist, all things are permissible. Is it obvious that not everything is permissible? Dostoevsky's thought, of course, that's indubitable. That's non-negotiable. We all have a conscience. Sartre thought the opposite. Sartre thought you could kill your conscience by killing God. Apparently so did Nietzsche. If God is dead, conscience is dead too. If God is dead, his image is dead. What's his image in the human soul? Conscience. So for Sartre, atheism is his non-negotiable premise. Do we know more about God or do we know more about ourselves? Do we know more about the mind and will of God or do we know more about the mind and will of ourselves? Obviously, we know more about ourselves. Therefore, Dostoevsky's argument is infinitely more reasonable, more probable than Sartre's. To make a premise about God, his non-existence, the absolute starting point uh, is to go back to Nietzsche. Nietzsche once wrote, I will now disprove the existence of all gods. If there were a god, how could I possibly bear not to be god? Consequently, there are no gods. Nietzsche, even more than Sartre, let the cat out of the bag there. That's precisely the philosophy of the devil. I will not serve, only command. When the Chinese communists responded to the Vatican's overtures to make some sort of a compromise in order to unify the illegal Catholic Church in China and the legal one, legal by communist standards, but not by Vatican standards and vice versa, uh, the president uh, of China publicly stated that atheism is our non-negotiable uh, premise and we will never compromise it for anyone or any religion. That's what Solzhenitsyn said is the essence of communism. It's not an economic theory. It's fundamentally a religious theory. Uh, a communist would sooner be uh, uh, would sooner compromise with capitalism than with theism. And we find that in China. China is by and large a capitalist country, but it's still atheist. Well, is Dostoevsky right in his premise? Yes and no. Ontologically, he's right. Epistemologically, he's wrong. What does that mean? Well, Objectively speaking, if there were no God, there couldn't be God's image, there couldn't be conscience, there couldn't be morality. That's true. Similarly, objectively speaking, if God didn't exist, science couldn't exist because there would be no universe and there would be no order in the universe if it did exist. 
But epistemologically speaking, subjectively speaking, psychologically speaking, speaking from our point of view, you can know the effect without knowing the cause. And if God is the cause of both conscience and order in nature, both natural moral law and natural physical law, then it's quite possible to know uh, that there is conscience and it has absolute obligations and morality is necessary and it goes all the way up somehow without knowing how, without knowing the first cause, without knowing the, the archetype, the standard, which is God, not just his will but his nature. Just as it is possible to be a very good and successful and honest scientist and yet to be an atheist, not to trace all this order in nature back to God as the first cause. In that sense, Dostoevsky is wrong. And if Dostoevsky is not wrong in that way, then I think the problem of our culture is hopeless because we can't expect religious unification. We can't expect everybody in Western civilization to suddenly become a Christian. So if reason doesn't also contact you with true morality, if without this first ingredient in religion that Lewis speaks of, without the confidence that there is something supernatural, you can't have the second one. But you can. Uh, it is possible to appeal to natural reason, natural law, natural conscience. Uh, in objective fact, the true God is the origin of it and the standard of it, but you don't have to know that. And our nation was founded on that conviction. That, I think, was the profoundly right notion of the Enlightenment, that reason does go all the way up, whether faith does or not. They were wrong in thinking that faith doesn't, and they were wrong in thinking that there's a conflict between science and religion, but they were right in thinking that good science and good logic and good philosophy goes all the way up into eternal truth, and that people should be expected to know that by their reason and follow that by their conscience. That's why I think the decline of philosophy is in a sense even more damaging than the decline of religion. Because philosophy, good philosophy is the, the seedbed of religion, and religion is a seed. But a seedbed is still hopeful of getting seeds. If you have that seedbed without the seeds, you can still hope that somebody will put seeds in it. But if there's no seedbed at all, if there's no ground, and there's just the religious seeds, and they're in the air, uh, hopeless. I find in arguing with skeptics and agnostics and people who are on the fence and who are not passionate, committed atheists on the one hand or passionate, committed Christians on the other hand and are swayed by the ideology of our time and its culture, I find that they're much, much more threatened by philosophical arguments for the natural law than they are by the most fundamentalistic and absolutist claims of religion. They're not uh, uh, outraged at the fact that many people believe in miracles, although they don't. They are outraged that people believe in a natural, universally known moral law, uh, which does not depend on religion, because that makes them responsible too. Well, 
Whether an individual can have morality without religion, I think, has been settled. The answer is yes. Can't have a complete morality, can't have a, a thoroughly grounded morality, but certainly can have the, the essence of morality, namely the adamant and absolute demand to follow conscience. Even, even moral relativists have at least one absolute left. Always follow your conscience. I never met anybody that admired somebody who was a hypocrite. The question is, can a society be based on morality without religion? Our founding fathers were ambiguous about that. Many of them said no, some of them said yes. Religion is clearly the strongest support for morality in all times and places and cultures. This is a necessary support. Can you have a society of Socrates' and Aristotle's, a society of agnostics and deists, and still have a moral society? I don't know. The jury is out on that. But let's look at the history of societies and find out which ones are the stablest and the most long-lasting, which ones are the happiest and the most peaceful, which ones are, by that standard, the most successful. Well, if by a society you don't mean simply a civil society, but a people that holds together by their common loves, which is Augustine's definition of a city or a society, then the oldest society in the world is Judaism. And its laws go back to Moses almost 4,000 years ago. And it has held together in a miraculous way. Uh, many historians and sociologists say the Jews violate every known uh, principle of, of history. They, by all standards, they shouldn't have survived, but they did. And they survived by being utterly faithful to their law, even when they were skeptical about God. So there's one example. The second most successful society in history is Confucian China. Uh, Confucius was not very successful during his lifetime, but soon after his death, uh, he became so successful that uh, every Chinese schoolchild learned Confucianism uh, 24 hours a day. It was very much like uh, uh, the description of uh, how to teach Judaism in Deuteronomy. Now, you, you, you bind your phylacteries and you have your mezuzahs and you recite the law and day and night, it's, it's there. There's no area of life called the sacred surrounded by the secular. There's nothing secular. Everything is sacred. And in China for 2,000 years, everything was Confucian until the uh, most extreme opposite philosophy, one based on class conflict rather than harmony, uh, took over with Mao Zedong, the greatest mass murderer in human history. Uh, whether the Confucian duck will be impervious to the communist reign and simply uh, survive, or whether Confucianism is dead and communism is the wave of the future, nobody knows. But certainly for 2,000 years, Confucius held together uh, the largest nation in history uh, for the longest time. Why? Highly moral, highly moralistic. Especially the virtue of piety. Which word, I'm told, in Chinese, as well as in Latin, pietas, means two things as one. Uh, reverence for your ancestors and reverence for the gods. Confucianism is hardly a religion at all. It claims to know almost nothing about the gods. It's very agnostic. 
It has a vague notion of the will of heaven. It has something like ancestor worship, but it's not very clear. So it's, let's say, 95% social ethics and 5% religion. But it's very strong on piety. Uh, and the same is true of the third most successful regime, namely the Roman Empire, which held together Western civilization for 700 years. Amazing. Nothing is that long-lived in, in, in Western history. Uh, pietas in, in Latin means two things, reverence for the gods and reverence for the ancestors. Because they're similar. They're, they're our origins. They're what gave us life, supernatural and natural. And if you don't have gratitude uh, towards what gave you life, you can't have any other virtue. One of the wisest and holiest men that I ever met, Father Norris Clark at Fordham University, uh, once went, he was a wise old Jesuit, he once went to Tibet. Uh, he uh, communicated with the Dalai Lama, and the Dalai Lama wasn't there, but he recommended that uh, one of his disciples, who was the head of the, the monastery in, in Tibet, uh, receive Father Clark. And he didn't have a foundation grant or anything, or it wasn't a scholarly trip. He just wanted to interact with the Buddhists to see what they had. So we spent about a week there, and the abbot was very friendly and spoke English. And, and at the end, uh, the abbot said, uh, here, you, you think, as a, as a Christian, that we Buddhists and you Christians have very different religions, uh, and uh, I don't think so. I think deep down we're one. Uh, and I want to test my hypothesis, Father Clark said, how? And he said, well, I'm going to uh, ask my three brightest monks here a question I never asked them before. And they understand English as, as we do. Uh, and I'm going to ask you the same question. And you're not going to hear their answer, and they're not going to hear your answer. You're going to write them down on separate pieces of paper, and then I'll collect the paper and read them and see how similar they are. Fine, said Father Clark. So the abbot said, obviously, we differ about God. We don't believe in a God, and we differ about the soul, and we don't believe in an individual soul or a life after death. Uh, but I'm not talking about theology now. I'm talking about religion, the, the, the basic roots of religion in the human soul. Father Clark said, fine. He said, what is, what is the first and most necessary foundation of all and any religion? Father Clark said, that's a challenging question. All right. He said, write the answer in as few words as you can. All right, that was the assignment. The four of them, Father Clark and the three Buddhist monks, all wrote a single English word on the four pieces of paper. And then when they were unfolded, it turned out that the word was the very same word. The word was gratitude. Father Clark said, what do you mean by gratitude? And the monk said, total cosmic gratitude. Gratitude for life, for death, for pain, for pleasure, for, for the, the past, for the present, for what exists, for what doesn't exist. Gratitude for absolutely everything. Father Clark said, it's very profound. I obviously agree with you. I have only one question. When you feel this gratitude for everything, to whom are you grateful if there is no God who is the author of everything? And Father Clark said, at that point, the monk's smile faded. And he said, we honestly don't know. And Father Clark smiled and said, we do. <laughs> I think that was great mission work. That was what St. Paul did at Mars Hill. 
He started with the profound common ground and then planted a new seed in that ground. If that ground didn't exist, what could you plant the seed in? In fact, I think there's an even closer connection between St. Paul and Greek philosophy than we think. In that uh, uh, great incident in, in Acts, when Paul goes to Mars Hill, uh, he goes up, I haven't been to Athens, but I'm told that uh, uh, that's at the, at the top of, of, of a long road that has a lot of altars uh, and statues of the gods of foreign as well as Greek religions because Athens was famous and it was visited by a lot of foreigners and they were very hospitable and they made provision for the foreigners to worship their gods, uh, not just the Athenian gods. Uh, so uh, Acts says, Paul said, uh, or rather felt, uh, a burning in his heart at the idolatry when he passed all these altarpieces to the false gods. Uh, but his talk to the Greek philosophers uh, was uh, not, uh, not a smackdown. He said, as I was coming here, I, I saw how religious you were. I think most of them didn't realize that was a left-handed compliment. You're too religious. Uh, but there was one altar with an inscription that I found especially interesting. To the unknown God. Well, if the god was unknown, there couldn't have been a statue over it. Now, in ancient Athens, uh, the art of sculpturing was developed to a very refined uh, point, and only a few were capable of that. However, the art of stone cutting was a very simple and crude thing, and anybody could cut a, a square altar out of granite or marble or whatever they used, and anybody could, uh, could inscribe letters because Greek didn't have cursive. It had uh, uh, block capital letters only, uh, and you could do that by just a chisel. Socrates was a stone cutter. Socrates may well have cut that inscription. That was his god, the unknown god. So here, uh, the great missionary of philosophy and the great missionary of the Christian religion meet, even though there's 400 years between them. And how do they meet? What does Paul say? The God you are already worshiping in ignorance, I now declare to you. The Greek language is wonderful. It has distinctions that no other language has. And one of the distinctions is between tenses of the verb. The aorist tense is a one-time thing. I slap you in the face. But the present progressive tense is a habitual thing. Uh, I drink. I swear. I sleep. He's using the present progressive tense. The God you, at least some of you, the disciples of Socrates, if you're true disciples of Socrates, the God that you are already worshiping in ignorance, worshiping in your heart but not in your mind, I will now declare to you. That's true humanism. That's not compromise by any means. It's seeing that the world of reason and the world of honest morality is the seedbed for the gospel. This is why I think what we have to do with our culture is not simply preach the gospel. We have to do pre-evangelism. The soil is dead. The soil is poisoned. Poisoned by subjectivism, relativism, nominalism, 
uh, radical individualism, all these isms, all these ideologies, they don't come from the human heart, though they do come from the human mind. And God didn't leave humanity much information in the mind that corresponds to theology. The religions of the world are wildly contradictory in their theologies. But he left a lot of knowledge of him, himself and his will in the human heart because the moralities of the different religions of the world are radically similar. They all go beyond pragmatic morality, beyond civic morality, beyond conventional morality, beyond even justice morality to something very much like agape, loss of selfishness, loss of the self. Get that false god off the throne. So that, I think, in healing our culture has to be our starting point, appeal to conscience. When you argue, for instance, with a passionately committed pro-choice person who hates and fears you because you're anti-abortion and you're implicitly calling an abortionist a murderer, realize that you're talking to two people there. You're talking to the mask and you're talking to the person behind the mask. The person behind the mask is designed by God and they have a conscience and they know that abortion is murder. They will not admit it. Don't expect them to admit it to you. But talk to that person, not just to the words. That's what Mother Teresa did. She wasn't good at long words. She wasn't good at argument. She wasn't a great theologian or a great philosopher. She probably converted more people than any other human being in the 20th century. She talked to the heart because she realized that the heart wasn't just feelings. Feelings can be manipulated. The heart was conscience. So we first of all have to appeal to and renew the conscience of our culture. Lewis's moral argument assumes that conscience is in place. Lewis, unfortunately, didn't live in the 21st century and only dealt with the, the beginnings of the most radical revolution in the history of the world next to Christianity. But he saw it coming. And in the abolition of man, he said, our culture differs from every other culture in the entire history of the world in the most fundamental way. The ultimate meaning of life, according to all of our ancestors, according to all cultures, is to somehow or other conform human life and the human soul to objective reality. And the means are wisdom and virtue. For our culture, beginning with Francis Bacon's uh, prophetic announcement that uh, uh, the highest thing in life, the meaning of life, is the conquest of nature. For our culture, uh, instead of conforming the human soul to objective reality, the meaning of life is to conform objective reality to the wishes of the human soul. And he mentioned one way of doing that. He neglected to mention a second one. The first way is technology, which is power. The second one is uh, moral relativism. We want our bodies to be freed from nature's pains and oppressions. We want our souls to be freed from consciences, oppressions, and condemnations and the very notion of sin. Uh, the first is an innocent desire. There's absolutely nothing wrong in technology, especially medical technology. Obviously, it's a dangerous power like money, and it can be misused. Money, alcohol, and technology are all in the same boat. Uh, but the idea that conscience oppresses you is an idea that can almost kill your conscience. In The Abolition of Man, Lewis 
seems to think that it's possible to totally kill your conscience, to produce a race of trousered apes without a conscience, without a, a chest that knows the Tao or the universal moral law. I hope he's wrong. Thomas Aquinas says he's wrong. And whenever I argue with Thomas Aquinas, I lose. He's a sumo wrestler and he weighs more than me. <laughs> Aquinas says the natural law cannot be erased from the heart of man. It can only be suppressed. And I think the Freudian notion of suppression is very useful because if something's suppressed, it's still there. It's not dead. Uh, so you can still appeal to it. You need different methods. Mere argument is insufficient, although it's necessary. Mere preaching is insufficient, although it's necessary. You need indirection. You need what Kierkegaard calls indirect communication. You need to do what Emily Dickinson said, tell the truth but tell it slant. Which is why Lewis's fiction is much more effective than his uh, philosophy, even though it's excellent philosophy. But I think the most powerful testimony of all is simply being yourself. Be a, be a saint. Here's data. How do you explain a saint? How, how, how do you explain a, a happy Christian? How do you explain the fact that believers are happy and live longer? That's empirical. I saw what I thought was a really funny joke in the Boston Globe last year on the front page. There apparently is a, an organization called the Global Happiness Project, and they evaluate all the countries in the world in terms of how happy the citizens are. Uh, and they give a prize of some sort to the five happiest countries in the world and a warning to the five unhappiest countries in the world. Uh, and the five happiest countries in the world, they said last year, were Finland, Sweden, Norway, Denmark, and Iceland. The five unhappiest countries in the world were all in sub-Saharan Africa. At first I thought this was a great joke because the two most clear indications of happiness or unhappiness are, first of all, smiles. Even a one-year-old who can't speak knows that smiles express any illicit happiness. And two, suicide. Nobody commits suicide if they're happy. Suicide is the clearest indicator of unhappiness, as smiles are the clearest indicators of happiness. Now, what continent smiles more than any other? Africans. Just look at the pictures. Empirical evidence. What place in the world has a higher suicide rate than any other? Scandinavia. I thought that was a joke. I thought it was a fantastically funny joke. It wasn't a joke. They were serious. What is happiness? Happiness is getting rid of God and enlarging your bank account. Well, that's the philosophy of the devil. That's what Jesus said. Here's one road. It leads to destruction. Be fat, happy, and contented and sink down to hell. Here's another road. It's narrow. It's hard. It's like the road out of Plato's cave. You have to struggle. You have to make efforts. But that's the road to happiness. So why do kids go to college today? In order to get onto that road and get rich. It's possible for the rich to enter heaven, but it's very difficult. So you want to make great difficulties for yourself? I, I think if Jesus were a college advisor, he would advise everybody to take a course in practical economics and how to get rich so you could avoid that temptation. But only crazy people like Wendell Burry say that, and you don't know about him. 
I'm finished. Your turn for questions. We do have to vacate this space uh, in probably five, ten minutes. We're technically supposed to be out at noon. Um, but we, can't, we do have time for one or two questions. So I'll just come around with the, the microphone real quick. I'm going to read this to make it quick. Uh, appreciated your illustration of the dead seed bed. Do you, is that, in your thinking, close to the same thing that Charles Taylor is saying when he calls us a secular age that's lost transcendence? We've lost, yes, we've lost our sources. Uh, God is, first of all, our creator, our source, our designer. And if you lose your source or if you're, you're close to that, you're dead. Uh, thus, filiation, childhood, uh, is, is being abolished today. Uh, a supreme generation gap. Uh, one, uh, there are only three possible futures for our society. Either we will continue to slide down into, into death, uh, or we will repent, because free will is still possible, uh, or we will violate the most obvious law of all of history. I don't think the third is likely. Okay, got time for one more. Dr. Marcos. So good to see you again, Peter. Um, you know, it's right what you said about C.S. Lewis. Sometimes the, fic the nonfiction doesn't have much hope, but the fiction does. And you mentioned abolition of man, which is fictionalized as that hideous strength. And I think about Mark Studdick in that lopsided room, but as you press his face in the mire, suddenly an understanding of the normal comes up. Yeah. Do you think that's possible in our culture? Will we yes, wake up? Yes, and maybe that, oh, this is a very big maybe. Maybe in the divine mind, that is one of the reasons why God allowed Hitler. I mean, that's, that, that's pretty desperate. When you need a monster that big to remind people that there is a moral good and evil, uh, we're pretty sunk low. But, but he's still uh, a very useful villain. We need, we need such villains. But on the other hand, uh, we have a saying in academia, uh, certain ideas are, are so absurd. For instance, uh, uh, who was it? Sartre said, I have been to the Soviet Union and I see total freedom there. Some ideas are so absurd you have to have two PhDs to believe them. <laughs> Thank you very much, Dr. Crave. Thank you, everybody, for coming out. Uh, that does it for this year's conference. We still have book sales out in the front. And uh, Dr. Crafe will be hanging around for a little bit as well. Thanks again. <laughs>